Most, if not all of us, desire the good life. But the definition of the good life is highly debatable. For some people, the good life represents living in an expensive home, driving a luxurious car, retiring early so you can travel the globe. Still, for other people, the good life represents raising healthy, happy children, building a lucrative business, getting into the twilight years of life, still with healthy physique. And still for others, the good life represents hitting that winning shot at the state tournament, getting the girl to actually go to prom with you, going to the college of choice, or landing the promotion at work. It's in times like this that I ask myself, how would Jesus define the good life? What would he say is the good life to which you and I need to ascribe? This morning, we begin a brand new series entitled The Good Life, whereby we will examine the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. The sermon is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It was voiced by none other than Jesus the Christ. It's recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It is to that passage that I invite us to turn our attention this morning. Today, we will begin by reading the introduction to this famous sermon of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. But let it be known, you and I will focus our attention only on verse 3. So if you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As we read Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 12 and focus our efforts on verse 3. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Once again, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We acknowledge that we need you to help us to preach. Please open our minds and our eyes so that we may see the truth of your word. Open our hearts so we may respond obediently. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's Matthew who tells us that Jesus went on top of a mountainside. Most people believe that Jesus preached this sermon from the vantage point of the northeastern mountain range on the Sea of Galilee. Have you ever stopped to realize that God does some of his best work on top of a mountain? It was on Mount Moriah where the Lord provided a ram caught in the thicket so that Abraham would not have to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. It was on Mount Horeb, 
where the Lord spoke to Moses through a burning bush that was on fire, yet not being consumed, and said, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It was on Mount Sinai, that same general vicinity, where the Lord brought Moses back and he gave him the Ten Commandments. It was on Mount Carmel, where the prophet Elijah defeated 450 prophets of Baal, declaring once and for all that God is the only God of the universe. It was on Mount Zion that the Lord created the holy city of Jerusalem. And don't ever forget that it was on Mount Calvary, where Jesus who knew no sin, became sin for us. He paid a sin debt he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. Have you ever stopped to realize that sometimes God does some of his best work on top of a mountain? And here Jesus climbs a mountain. You know it's about to get good because Jesus, the author of life, has now gone on top of a mountain. He sits down and begins to teach. To say that he sits down is to say that he takes the posture of authority. I realize that in our culture, if somebody has something to say, we tell them to stand and speak. But in the days of antiquity, to stand was a much more informal setting. To be seated before students conveyed much more authority. And so Jesus climbed a mountainside and he sat down to teach the crowd. Matthew is a master at putting bookends around his gospel. He wants to communicate that this Jesus speaks the very word of God, for he has all authority. The very first picture of the uh, proclamation ministry of Jesus is found in here in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is seated in that position of authority. You and I talked last week at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, the very last sermon Jesus ever preached. He said, as a resurrected Lord, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus has all authority. He can speak the very wisdom of God, for he speaks the very word of God. To punctuate the point, it's Matthew who tells us the very end of chapter 7, that the people were amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority, not like the religious teachers of the law. You know what Matthew is saying? Matthew is saying the normal preachers bore everybody to death, but not Jesus. When Jesus speaks, everybody's on the edge of their seat, for he speaks as one who has authority. Jesus climbed a mountainside, and he sat down to teach. You know, even in our culture, we convey the idea that to be seated is to be a place of authority. In the academic world, the leader of a particular department at a university or of a college, we say of that individual, he or she is the chair of that department. They hold the place of authority. Even here at the church, we have a lot of committees and every committee has a chairman. What does that mean? It means that that individual who has that place of priority is in the seat of authority over that committee. And Jesus begins his teaching ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, and he's seated. Matthew arranges his gospel in five lengthy teaching passages. 
The first one is here, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The second one can be found in Matthew chapter 10. The third lengthy teaching passage comes in Matthew chapter 13. The fourth one is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 18. And the fifth and final lengthy passage that Jesus gives is recorded in Matthew chapters 23, 24, and 25. Matthew wants to communicate that Jesus speaks the very wisdom and word of God. He climbed a mountainside that day. He was seated in a place of authority and he began to teach the disciples. Jesus gives nine words of blessing. The introduction is normally called the Beatitudes. And on nine different occasions, Jesus says the word blessed. Now, God's people are a blessed people. This is part of our language. I promise you, I am not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. I am not just doing preacher talk as if preachers lie, are liars. But anyway, I, I'm not exaggerating at all. When I came to church today, I came and bumped into the first gentleman I saw. And I said, how are you doing today? And his response was, I'm blessed. That's just how we speak. That's, that's our language. But what do we mean by that? What do we mean by saying that we are blessed? The word blessed actually means happy or fortunate. The Greek playwright Homer used that very same Greek word to describe a wealthy man. Homer believed that in order to be blessed was to be wealthy. That carries over into our day as well. It was Plato, the philosopher, who said that a blessed individual is one who is successful in business. So once again, we understand that even in our language, people inside the church, outside the church, they still speak of being blessed. And most of the time, it is connected with some type of financial blessing, some type of possession, something that we acquire, something that we have. There were numerous other playwrights and philosophers who would use the word blessed. They would use it to describe the Greek gods and goddesses of mythology and describe them as being not influenced by external circumstances. That somehow they had a happiness, they had a contentment that was independent of the manipulation of circumstances that were around them. This is the understanding of blessed. To be blessed is to be um, one who has an inward reality of independence, has an inward peace about himself or herself, and not manipulated by outside circumstances. Yet even in our day, we conjure the word blessed to equate to financial advancement or financial success. The whole American advertising industry is based on this concept. In order for you to bless, you got to have some things. You've got to possess some things. You've got to do some things. And if you do things and possess things and have things, then you will be blessed. And we conjure the idea that being blessed means that we have the bling, the ring, and the thing. We have the bling, we have the ring, and we have the thing. And if we have all of that, then we're blessed. Yet this morning, I wonder, what does Jesus understand as the blessed life? How does he describe what it is to be blessed? I don't think that he's going to say that being blessed always equates with financial resources. We have a great example of this in the Old Testament person of Solomon. Solomon had royal blood pulsating through his veins. Solomon had a fleet of sailing ships. Solomon had a stable that was filled with the fastest, strongest horses on the planet. 
Solomon had hundreds of wives. Solomon ate the most delicious food on the royal table. Solomon was able to hobnob with some of the best dignitaries in the globe. And Solomon was able to reside in the most palatial palaces known to man. And yet Solomon says, when I look at everything in life, everything is meaningless. In Ecclesiastes, this one who is known for wisdom and wealth says, as I've evaluated my work, my projects, my pleasure, and even my folly, I come to the conclusion that all of it is meaningless. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that all of life is meaningless. For there was nothing that I, den- that I denied my desiring heart. Everything my eyes saw, I was able to achieve and to receive. And yet everything is meaningless. It's like a man chasing after the wind. Have you ever met anybody who's chasing after the wind? They're chasing after the good life for all the things that this world can provide. I don't know about you, but I went to college with some guys like Solomon. I've known guys like Solomon. I know ministers like Solomon. I know individuals. I have friends that are chasing everything in this world. And what they're doing is they're trying to grab and chase the wind. They're looking for success. They're seeking happiness. They want the good life. And so today I ask Jesus, what does it mean to have the good life? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had a knack of flipping the script. Jesus had a knack of turning cultural norms upside down. Jesus said in other places, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be great, you got to be the least. If you want to live, you've got to die. And honestly, you got to say to yourself, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, this leaves me scratching my head. Because we live in a culture that says if you want to be first, that means you've got to be first in line, and you may have to throw some elbows to get there. And if you want to be great, you better climb the ladder of success, and you may step on some toes and step on some faces in order to get there, but that's all right, because you're going to be great. And if you want to live, do everything you can not to die. Go to every program, have every medicine, have every ointment, every tuck, every cream. You do whatever you can so that you won't get old and you can fight the, uh, uh, the, the clock of time. We live in a culture that says, Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus flips the script. Jesus turns cultural norms upside down. Think about what he said in verse 3. Blessed are the poor. What? There's no culture that's built that way. Every culture is built blessed are the rich. Because you know the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Right? I mean, you know how it works. You know, it's the wealthy that succeed. Every culture is set up. Blessed are the rich. Yet Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor. That doesn't make any sense. Now, clearly the Bible tells us that we are to give to the poor, to help the poor, to minister to the poor. But nowhere does the Bible lift up poverty as a virtue. The Bible says help the poor, but the Bible never says make people penniless. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. Why did he say that? Because they were plentiful? Because there's so many poor people. 
Jesus says, blessed are the poor. What is he driving at? Does he want us just to empty our bank accounts? Is he telling us just to be penniless and destitute? What is he meaning? We live in a culture that says, blessed are the rich. And even in the first century, it was believed that if you had financial resources, that was a sure sign of blessing from God. Hear that. When the disciples heard Jesus, they were operating under the assumption that anybody who had financial resources, that was an automatic indicator, that person was blessed of God. And Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor. Are you kidding me? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. Jesus does not say, blessed are the poor in wallet. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, clearly, Jesus has a picture in mind. He's communicating an image. Everybody understood the posture of a beggar. Beggars were everywhere in the first century. They lined the streets. Before people could get into the temple, before they could go into the synagogue, they had to pass a half a dozen beggars at least. And every beggar had the same posture. There was nothing arrogant about a beggar. Poverty in the first century is a lot different than poverty in the 21st century. I'm just making an observation here. But I've been a senior pastor for about 15 years And I realize that we as a church have a mandate to help those who have fallen on hard times. And yet I can't tell you the number of times that people will come into the church office, maybe not here, but other places I've been. They'll come into the church office and we will do our best to help them in as many ways possible. And they will ask for anything under the sun. Individuals will come in and ask for help with the mortgage, help with the power bill, help with the gas bill, help with Christmas, help with a car payment, help with an overnight stay. And they'll ask for just about anything. And Oftentimes, we do our very best to help them in as many ways possible. But there are times when finances are limited. Resources are limited. You can't do as much as maybe you want to do or you could do. And I can't tell you the number of individuals in our culture, in our day, in our society, that they are flabbergasted that the church won't help them. Because we have created an entitlement program. We've created an entitlement mentality. It's almost as if uh, we owe people to do all these things for them. And if you try to nicely say, I'm sorry, we can't do that right now. They're angry. They're flabbergasted. They storm off and say, but you're supposed to be the church. My friends, that is no picture that Jesus has in mind of the first century. Because in the first century, a person who was destitute, a person who was in need, realized that he had no leg to stand on. No chip to barter, no hand to deal, nothing to demand. There was no way he could pay back the debt. And so every beggar lining the streets before the door of the temple would cower down, kneel down. Head would be downcast. Oftentimes, eyes would be closed because the person would realize, I have no right to look you in the face because we are not on the same level and with an outstretched arm and an open hand the person would just sit there and plead and beg Jesus says that's it that's the key to the kingdom 
That's it. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. That is how you come into my kingdom. That's the beginning of the good life. And once again, we say, what? What are you talking about? How can that be entrance into your kingdom? How can that be a picture of what it is to have a good life? I would much rather have some bling bling in my pocket. I would much rather be an independent man. I would much rather be a self-made man. I would much rather drive a nice car, have a nice chariot, have nice robes. I would much rather, Jesus, what are you driving at? And Jesus says, that's the picture. That's it. He's not talking about financial bankruptcy. He's talking about spiritual bankruptcy. Where you and I come to God and we say we have nothing to bring to our own salvation. There's no way we can pay you back. There's no way we can barter with you, God. There's no way we can earn your grace. All we are are nothing more than spiritual beggars. We can't look you eye to eye because your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God, we are not on the same level. Oh God, you are great. I am nothing more than a beggar. I bow before you and all I do is please with you and with an outstretched arm and an open hand I ask for your grace and Jesus says that's the picture of the beginning of the good life it's all because of grace grace is receiving something good that you do not deserve you've heard the acrostic it's God's righteousness at Christ's expense that's a good definition of grace it's God's righteousness at Christ's expense all we are are nothing more than bankrupt beggars all we are are spiritually destitute men and women we simply come before God and we can't offer anything under our own salvation we have no leg to stand on no chip to barter There's nothing we can demand of the Lord. There's nothing we can earn. And when we receive it, we cannot say, it's about time, God. What took you so long, God? All we can say is, thank you, Jesus. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you see what God gives? to the bankrupt beggar, the kingdom of heaven. Now in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. It communicates the rule of Christ. It communicates the reign of Christ in your life. And the Lord Jesus says, the person who comes to God as a spiritual beggar, that person will receive the crown jewel of heaven. And it's not some eschatological event. It's not something that will take place in the millennium. It's not a futuristic uh, occurrence. For he does not say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The moment you come to God as a beggar, the moment you bow before him and say, I cannot bring anything to my salvation, I can't earn it by my works, I can't do enough good deeds to somehow merit entrance into your kingdom, all I am is a poor beggar, I'm bowing low, my head is downcast, my arm is outstretched, my palm is open unto you, and God, I can't demand this of you. And God says in that moment that you come to God in that way, Jesus comes into your life. In that moment, sin is removed. In that moment, 
Life is given. In that moment, purpose is in your step. In that moment, you have an eternal home with God because in that moment, the crown jewel of heaven comes and lives within you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did you hear that? God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you have Christ in your life, you have everything. Everything that you need. Everything for eternity. Everything for this world. You have everything that you need simply because you come to God as a spiritual beggar and he gives you none other than Jesus the Christ, both now and forevermore. So this morning I ask you, are you poor in spirit? I'm not asking, are you poor in wallet? I'm asking, are you poor in spirit? You say, but pastor, how do I know? Let me say just a few items to that matter. You and I know that we are poor in spirit when we get lost in the wonder of Christ. I didn't say... Uh, we know we're poor in spirit when we walk an aisle or go through the waters of baptism or even pray a certain prayer. We know that we are lost. We know that we are poor in spirit when we are lost in the wonder of Christ. It was a thief on the cross who could not lift his hand or foot unto his own salvation. He simply said to Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. Are you still amazed that God loves you? Are you still amazed that God saved you? I don't know about you, but I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean, but oh, how marvelous, and oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Church, don't ever outgrow Jesus. What I mean by that is don't ever get to the point where you're no longer moved by the Messiah. You're no longer overwhelmed by the amazement of Christ, that Christ loves you in spite of you. Oh, the one who is poor in spirit is one who is lost in the wonder of Christ. The one who is poor in spirit is a, a person who thinks of himself or herself less. I didn't say they think less of themselves. I said they think of themselves less. I, I don't... I don't think that we need any more false piety. We have enough of that in the church today. So many people that want to think less of themselves, all they have is an Eeyore complex. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. And you say, brother, you don't really believe that. You don't believe you're that bad. It's false piety. We don't need false piety. We don't need to think less of ourselves. We just need to think of ourselves less. So we think of Christ more. So we think of others before ourselves. You do know that the spelling of the word sin and the spelling of the word pride have I in the middle of it. And most of us live our life with I in the middle of our world. We're so selfish to the core. The person who is poor in spirit says, God, I'm going to think of myself less. 
But third, the person who's poor in spirit doesn't complain so much. You ever stop to realize that people complain quite a bit? We complain about our jobs, we complain about our families, we complain about our wives, we complain about our husbands, we complain about our children, we complain about our parents, we complain about our coaches, we complain about our neighbors, we complain about money, we complain about complaining, we complain about our pain, we complain about our our prognosis, we complain about a host of things. Have you ever stopped to realize that people like to complain? But when you're poor in spirit, and you realize that if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would have nothing. When you realize that God loves you in spite of yourself, you realize, you know what? It may not be great right now in your personal life, but it always could get worse. (laughs) I mean, it may not be great, but uh, um, God has been good to you. It may not be great, but you know what? God is still on his throne. And so you say to yourself, you know what? I am poor in spirit because every good thing I have in my life is because of God. So I'm just going to praise him just a little bit longer instead of complaining about my circumstances. The person who is poor in spirit, fourth and finally, is a person who spends an inordinate amount of time in praise. Spends an inordinate amount of time in praise. Because if you realize that all you are is a bankrupt beggar, just a spiritual beggar that comes to the Lord, head bowed, eyes closed, arm outstretched, palm open heavenward, and anything that God places in your hand You respond by saying, thank you, Jesus. When I woke up this morning, and I realized there was still some lungs, still some air in my lungs, and clothes on my back, and food in my stomach, and a roof over my head, all I could say is, thank you, Jesus. When I stopped to realize that I should be destitute, but God has delivered me. I should have been rejected, but God has received me. I should have been abandoned, but God has accepted me. I should have been slain, but God has saved me. I should have been killed, but God has called me. All I can do is say, thank you, Jesus. When I realized that God saved me, not because he owes me anything, simply because he loves me in spite of me, all I could do was say, thank you, Jesus. When I realized that God gave hope in my hopelessness and help in my helplessness and delight in my despair, all I could say was, thank you, Jesus. When I realized that God and I are not on a contract basis, but we're on a covenant basis because I can't keep up my end of the bargain, and God says, that's okay, I know you can't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm going to be the covenantal God with you. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my guy, and you're going to speak my mouthpiece. I just had to say, thank you, Jesus. When I stop and realize that even on the worst days, I am still blood-bought. I am still a saved believer. I am still one who stands faultless in the presence of God simply because of the accomplished work of Christ. The only thing I can say is, thank you, Jesus. You and I are nothing more than bankrupt beggars. We have no spiritual leg to stand on. And we come to God as one who is pleading for his grace. Jesus told a story in his ministry. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. 
to people who were confident in their own righteousness, Jesus said two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood in the middle of the temple. He lifted his eyes to the heavens as if he could see God face to face. And he prayed about himself. The translation can also be read, he prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like evildoers. I'm not like robbers. I'm not even like this tax collector over here. But I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Aren't you glad? Let me turn around so you can pat me on the back. And Jesus said that the tax collector stood in the corner of the room. He couldn't even lift his head heavenward. He simply beat his chest. And he said a seven-word prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus shocked the crowd. He flipped the script. He said the tax collector, the known crook, not the Pharisee, the religious elite, went home justified before God. Because he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what that prayer is? It's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how you start the good life. That's how you enter God's kingdom. You come not arrogant, but humble. You come not demanding anything of God, but receiving his mercy. You come realizing there's no way you can pay God back or pay God off. You simply come and say, I'm nothing more than a spiritual beggar. I am bankrupt before you, O oh God. So Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. My friends, there are no more powerful words than that seven-word prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and we do not come with arrogance. We can't demand anything from you. We can't impose our will upon you. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and we are your servants. So Lord, if there's one listening to my voice who's never accepted you as Savior and Lord, today I pray that they will plead with you for salvation, that they will trust you as their Savior. Lord Jesus, for those who are believers, but maybe over the years, those individuals have become calloused and hard-hearted. Oh God, please help us to realize that at best and at worst, we are nothing more than bankrupt beggars pleading for your mercy and grace. So Father, this altar is open. If anyone needs to come and kneel here and pray, if anyone needs to come and join this faith family, now is the time to do it. So Lord, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray.